Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Hey everybody, just wanted to preface this episode and let you know this is one of a last few remaining episodes from the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival in Canada, and I had a really great time up there, and there were a few episodes that I saved as long as I could. This one, and one with Kevin Hart that will be coming out the following week that I know you're going to like a lot. But this one is really, really special with Barry Crimmins, who is an extraordinary artist and activist and just the events in his life that shaped him into who he is today are incredible. And the stories he tells are overwhelmingly powerful. So without further ado... Please enjoy. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. This is a good day. A good day. This is my second day in Montreal. I'm very excited. My voice is a little crazy because what happens here is you go to seminars and different things every day. In my case, I do podcasts during the day. And then at night, you go to these shows, one after the other. And there's some great performers here. It's an amazing, amazing time. And just went last night to see Brad Williams, who is amazing, and my guest today, Barry Crimmins, who is also amazing, and we're going to have an amazing time, and I'm going to say amazing at least nine times, and then I'm going to end it. But anyway, it's great. My voice is raspy because you're in this bar in the Hyatt. It's insanity. 
okay? There's hundreds and hundreds of people from comedy, the industry, and you're hanging around with some of the biggest stars in the world. Like last night, I was at a show with Blake Griffin. I'm on a FaceTime with my son, and he calls my son's name, and he turns the phone around. He's doing a FaceTime with my son, and he's the happiest kid in the world, and I'm happy, and I think to myself, this guy's really accessible, but it's probably just here in this green room. And then you go down the Hyatt, and he's hanging out with everybody, and there's no security. This is the biggest basketball star in the world, or one of them. He's hanging out, and people are having a great time. It's wonderful, and I had an incredible time yesterday. Got to interview a guy who I've known my whole career, Kevin Hart, and I was so honored that he decided that he would be interviewed by me, so that was great. Also, I want to thank you all so much for all you do and for just your support. It's just been incredible, the response. I can't even begin to tell you how humbling it is when you do something that you believe in and you try to do it in your spare time and try to do everything you can to get it going and it happens and people come up to you and they say that they like it and they say that it's helped them that's all you can ask for and especially sitting across from barry crimmins because that's all he wants to do is help people and i hope that i can have maybe a fraction of the impact that he has on the world so what else can i tell you I can tell you, go to the Amazon banner if you get a chance on the barrycats.com slash podcast website. You click on the banner, you buy whatever you want, and it aids to the Barry Cats Jewish Boy College Fund. So thank you very much. <laughs> it means a lot to me, and it means a lot to them to buy baseball equipment. And so without further ado, as you know, I look at my guest, and I think of what I'm going to say. I never know what I'm going to say. And this will be no exception. So here we go. I look at Barry Crimmins, and I'll tell you what I think, everybody. This is a really interesting thing to actually sit across from a man who I probably haven't seen in 25 years that I can remember, 30 years. And so it's hard to look at somebody when you haven't seen them in a long time, and so many memories go through your mind. So... I want to share something with you guys. There's just two parts to the story. Part one is me as a young person in Boston uh, coming from Longmeadow, Massachusetts, which was a white town in western Massachusetts with only two African-American people that I knew and coming to Boston and to a multicultural city. And I was very sheltered in Longmeadow, Massachusetts, and believe it or not, I'm being honest with everybody here, I didn't know what it was like to have somebody who was angry at me. I didn't know what it was like to have a gay person in my life. I didn't know what it was like to hang out with a black person, an Asian person, a Latino person. I never saw a drug. I never saw marijuana. I never saw cocaine. I never saw anything. I know that's crazy, but I was very sheltered and that's the way it was. But I knew after discovering albums of my dad's, especially Bob Newhart and listening to them on my record player that I bought with S&H green stamps, that I just felt something kindred about comedy. And after I started doing the Bob Newhart driving instructor routine, I realized very quickly that I needed to do my own material. And I quickly discovered through a lot of research where the places were. And one of the places I went was a place called Constant Comedy at the Ding Ho. And I want to share something with the people that I've never shared and Barry does not know. 
when the ding ho closed down, I traveled there early in the morning because I wanted to get an artifact of the ding ho. And I went to the ding ho and I got the sign, the famous sign that hung 20 feet up. That was the ding ho that said constant comedy. Wow. And I rented a van and I brought it back to my apartment that I rented for $150 a month and I hid it in the back of a crawl space where it stayed for 10 years. And when I went through a personal tragedy, all I could think about was getting out of that town and going to New York. And when I finally got all my stuff, packed it up and got out of there and was out of there for like three months, I realized that that sign was still in the crawl space of this building. And that Ding Ho Club was an amazing place that Barry Crimmins came down from Skinny Atlas, New York, and built into one of the greatest comedy club venues of my generation. Now, today, everybody, if you were to walk into a club that was like the Ding Ho, and you were walk in and say, hey, we're doing comedy here, you would have gotten in your car and walked out. It wasn't a venue that you would think would be great for comedy. The bar was in the room. It was a Chinese restaurant. There was a dishwashing area in the back that was loud. Sometimes televisions were on silently with the Celtics game or the Bruins game on. Sometimes on a night when Barry wasn't there and maybe he didn't have all the control, you'd be in the middle of your routine and you hear this amazing, amazing response in the middle of a routine. You'd be like, wow, I never knew that was so funny or that got such a great response. And you realize that Bobby Orr just scored or Larry Bird just scored the winning basket. But the fact is, is that this was a place where Stephen Wright, Lenny Clark, Paula Poundstone, Jack Gallagher, who you may not know, who's one of the greatest yeah. comedians of all time. Martin Olson, who works in a lot of television shows, was the piano player. And there was this mix of amazing comedy that was there. And when I went there, it was one of the first times that I realized what life was going to be. Because the Ding Ho was a mixture of everything. There was Shun Lee who owned the place, oh, yeah. who was an Asian man who barely spoke English. I got that my fill. There were, believe it or not, even in Inman Square, Cambridge, there were African-American people and comedians that yeah. came in and you were like, wow, I'm mixing with this group of people. There were all sorts of different people, but the thing that I noticed more than anything else is that there was a lot of drugs. There was a lot of cocaine there was a lot of marijuana I, I barry crimmins hated cocaine thank you <laughs> but that didn't mean that he could control the people yeah. in his place and i used to go to the show on wednesdays that lenny clark used to host it was an open mic and then i would get to go on the open micers would sometimes go on in between these great comedians like steve yeah. sweeney don gavin and people would just pop in, and it was an amazing time in my life. And one of the things that I never really understood as I started going and being an entrepreneur and started booking my own comedy clubs and doing things and doing the college circuit, I always had enormous respect for Barry, and I always stayed away from Barry because Barry was the first person in my life that I ever met who was always angry 
always had a scowl on his face, always rarely smiled, always dressed presidential, always had a blazer on and a tie, always was clean shaven, but with a huge, huge Fu Manchu mustache. And he always seemed to look at me in a way that I felt like this guy really feels horribly towards me. And as I, and as I, as I became an entrepreneur, I felt it even more because I was booking a lot of different people and I would rarely book Barry because I felt like the audiences that I was catering to when I was booking these college shows hated me. We're looking for these young people to do a kind of entertainment that Barry wasn't doing. And so I never felt like this kindred spirit with Barry. And I always felt like, and one time I remember he took me aside. He said that I was doing a disservice to him and comedy by supporting that kind of comedy. It really affected me. When he said that, then I thought to myself, I got to really understand this political comedy. I got to really look at it more closely. And I would spend time and go see him and hide in the back of the room at Stitches and just watch him. And I I gained an enormous appreciation for him and his work and political comedy. And later on, I think his influence was also on people like Jimmy Tingle, who started in Boston and ended up getting the 60 Minutes 2 gig and is a tremendous political artist. And I think the influence that he had, I believe, on somebody like Jimmy Tingle was very evident because Jimmy also didn't do the local gigs, still doesn't do the local gigs, and will do other things uh, away from that to separate the kind of intelligent comedy that he and Barry have. And so that's the first part of the story that was really interesting. And so all these years, I never understood what was going on. I never understood because when I, I understand sometimes why people, I don't feel like they have this connection with me. And I know in business, there's always going to be people that dislike you or things that happen. And I, I technically, in my mind, I didn't think that Barry disliked me, but I thought there was something going on, but I didn't know what was going on instinctually. And in business, artists that you work with, you can get stained as a manager. You can have an artist, you can put them up for something, and then they can cancel the gig. And then you're in a situation where you're really, really hurt and that person that you canceled the gig with, they're feeling unhappy with you. You can have a client leave an agency, and even if you don't want them to leave, they leave, and you have a choice. You either let go of that client and say, I don't want to work with you anymore because you did that, or you stay with the client, you go to another agency. The agency doesn't look at you like they're happy. They blame you sometimes. And so I didn't know what was going on, and then... I heard about a film that was coming out called Call Me Lucky with a guy who was a roommate of mine when I was in Boston, Bobcat Goldthwaite. And I didn't know what to expect when I watched the film. And I watched the film, and I'm watching this beautiful, almost like a love letter to Barry Crimmins. And the first half of the film, it's just a love letter to Barry Crimmins about how he was angry, but how he took care of these people and, and in Boston, and how he was supportive, and how it didn't matter if somebody was a different kind of comedian like Stephen Wright, who worked there all the time, or Lenny Clark, or DJ Hazard, who did guitar comedy, or Don Gavin, who used fast words and wordplay, or people who used the F word 
as some kind of a noun or adjective. He didn't care because he liked all kinds of comedy and he knew there was nobody like him. And Barry was able to mix with these people. So here I am watching it. I'm like, wow, this is incredible. This is wonderful. What a great film. I understand this film. And then the turn happens halfway through where we find out that Barry was molested and raped as a young child in his own home by the mother's boyfriend over and over again. And the second half of the film has to do with that and Barry's advocacy against the crimes that happened to children through the internet at the time AOL and all the interviews with all the comedians and how much he meant to them and still means to them. And when I saw Barry for the first time last night, I saw a different man. I hung out with a different man. I hung out with a man who was full of love and full of support and a man who it appears has come full circle. And after I watched this film, which I highly, highly recommend that you stop this podcast now and you go on iTunes and you buy Call Me Lucky. This is an amazing, amazing journey, a film that's incredible. Or free on uh, Netflix. <clears throat> or free on Netflix. And the work that Bob Goldthwait did and the work that Barry Crimmins did made me realize why Barry was so angry, why he was so upset, why he not only chain-smoked but chain-beer drank. It made me realize a pain that this guy was in and the self-medication necessary to deal with something so horrible in his life and how he has fought so hard to change what's happening in the world. And because of him, I would say hundreds of thousands and maybe millions of children are safer in this world. And so if there's any lesson that I have today, it's the fact that in business and your personal life, you're going to deal with a lot of demons. You're going to deal with a lot of bad things that happen. I'm not saying that you have the horrible kinds of things that happen to Barry in your life. But there's going to be people in your life that die that are close to you. People are going to get sick. There's going to be tragedies that happen that you can't believe have happened to your family. You're going to say to yourself, he was so young, she was so young, why? Or there's divorce and you're a kid and a teenager and you wonder what happened. Obviously, there's going to be these horrible things that happen in everybody's life and people don't tell you about it. When you grow up, your parents don't say, this is the way it's going to be. You're going to have great times and you're going to have bad times and you're going to learn how to do it. But the fact is, as I see Barry and I saw him perform last night, amazing, and I saw this film, which was extraordinary, I saw a person who was able to figure out a way to fight through the demons and get through it. And instead of being in the situation where he held all this horrible stuff inside, he figured out a way to channel it and use it for good and not evil. And the fact is, is that I think in business and your personal life, if you can figure out in any situation that's bad or negative at work, 
or in your personal life, how to figure out how to navigate around it and address the problem, fight as hard as you can to address the problem, even though you don't want to because of whatever you're feeling, whether it be embarrassment or you're feeling like ashamed or whatever it is. If you can fight through it and open up and get to it, you're going to be successful in your personal life, much more successful. You're going to help more people. You're going to inspire more people. And you're going to have the kind of life and career that Barry Crimmins has. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. It will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, 
and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. If you're all still awake from that horribly gut-wrenching cold open that I did, then we're going to try to put you to sleep now by giving you a little introduction for Barry Crimmins, which is long and exciting for me, but my voice might put you to sleep. Hopefully not. All right. Barry Crimmins is a former Air America radio writer and correspondent, social justice activist, internationally renowned political satirist, and author of the acclaimed Seven Stories press book, Never Shake Hands with a War Criminal. He helped bring the Boston comedy scene into the modern age when he founded two of Boston's most fabled clubs, the Dingho and Stitches. Such acts as Stephen Wright, Paula Poundstone, Bobcat Goldthwaite, Kevin Meany, Jimmy Tingle, and many, many others cut their comedic teeth in the rooms Crimmins started and at shows he produced. As the years went on, he became an activist of sorts, traveling to Nicaragua to perform political satire about the U.S. government and the Contras. The brilliant, multi-talented Crimmins is also an actor known for Call Me Lucky, which launched in 2015, which again, you got to get the Young Comedians All-Star Reunion in 1986, and when stand-up stood out in 2003. In the early 90s at the Comedy Club Stitches, after a long and scathing speech about American culture and politics, a clearly tortured criminal suddenly shifted topics. A newspaper report said he said that he'd always identified with victims and he'd recently begun to understand why. As a kid, a sweet, happy kid, by all accounts, he had been raped by a man who knew his babysitter. He said this guy would come over, he would take me down in the basement and rape me. It was violent and it happened a number of times. Later, Crimmins decided to move to Cleveland and in seeking support groups and fellow survivors online, he inadvertently discovered that there were chat rooms for pedophiles on AOL, a great many of them categorized extensively. In those days, the internet was widely unregulated. When Crimmins tried to alert AOL, he found the company to be unresponsive. Then he contacted the police in 1995 and Crimmins testified about child pornography in Congress, using his superior rhetorical skills against AOL's Director of Government Affairs in front of an audience that included the late Strom Thurmond and Russ Feingold. The hearings led to the heightened awareness and zero-tolerance policy for pedophiles on AOL, an incredible impact for Crimmins. The political district that Crimmins contacted has since made more than a thousand indictments related to internet child pornography. I just want you to know, everybody, for the first time in my podcast life, I have chills and goosebumps. I am blown away. Crimmins' satirical writing and comedy routines have focused through the years on the need for political and social change. Crimmins received the Peace Leadership Award in 1991 from Boston Mobilization for Survival, 
The award was presented by, of all people, Noam Chomsky. Additionally, he was honored by community work with the Artist for Social Change Award for his years of activism. In 1994, Howard Zinn presented Crimmins along with Maya Angelou. The Courage of Conscious Award from Wellesley College and the Life Experience School at the Peace Abbey in Sherborne, Massachusetts. Barry's friend Howard Zinn did the presenting that day. His work as an activist, journalist, and performer has taken Crimmins everywhere from American campaign trail to war zones in Central America, to Camp Casey on the perimeter of the George W. Bush compound. Furthermore, Crimmins is the author of Never Shake Hands with a War Criminal, a collection of essays for Seven Stories Press. He was a contributing essayist for the Boston Phoenix for over 20 years. Barry's work is both a comic and activist with special emphasis on his efforts on behalf of child abuse victims and survivors is unprecedented. His film, Call Me Lucky, debuted at the Sundance Film Festival and has been critically acclaimed throughout the country. In June of this year, Barry Crimmins shot a special in Lawrence, Kansas for Louis C.K.'s Pig Newton Productions. Crimmins has toured with Jackson Brown, Stephen Wright, Billy Bragg, Dar Williams, Utah Phillips, Warren Zevon, to name a few. The acts he has appeared with on various occasions include Odetta, Chris Christofferson, David Crosby, Graham Nash, Bonnie Raitt, Patty Griffin, Harry Belafonte, and what goes on and on. He's currently on his No Hero tour with dates soon in every section of the USA. Sellout crowds have enthusiastically welcomed the insightful and hilarious political satirist who has rewarded his fans with his trademark biting yet loving wit. Barry Crimmins is a true American comedy legend who never rests on his laurels, instead building each performance on a lifetime of remarkable experiences and a comic mind that has made him into the one-of-a-kind comic you really do need to see. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. It's an honor, Barry Crimmins. Well, thank you. Let me fix my hair. (laughs) Thank you. It's great to be here, old friend. Wasn't that a time we came up in? You know, wasn't that a time? And the reason I knew, I kind of knew we were doing something, but there's a guy named Ian Stewart. He used to play uh, the keyboards for a band called the Rolling Stones. And, but he was old and frumpy. He was like a jazz guy, you know, old, it, it, old frumpy looking guy with like a crumpled up suit on. And, and he just, he didn't, he didn't look hip enough to be in the Rolling So he still played on the albums and stuff. And, and they would bring him out in the concert later, just sort of slink him in there. But, Still, like whoever they are, marketing people were like, we can't have any. And he ended up uh, engineering Exile on Mainstream. Well, anyway, he was in Boston uh, at Fort Apache Studios, uh, putting together in Cambridge, putting together George Thurgood. I think it was like the big George Thurgood album. And he he, so he used to hang out at the In Square Men's Bar. Ladies invited, you know, a famous rock club. And that's where I would go hide from the ding ho. I can tell people, but I, that's where I would go, just like loom. And they, you know, so. anyway, I walk in one day. I said, "Fuck!" Ian Stewart's sitting there. I go, "Hey, hey!" It's, it's like, "Shh!" shh. I go, oh man, sorry, I forgot. It's probably a pain in the ass to be in there involved with the Rolling Stones. So I invite him over to the ding, and he starts coming over. 
Ian Stewart. Yeah. And he goes, just don't tell anybody what I'm doing. And I go, yeah. And it's like, and of course, he couldn't pay for a drink. Almost, that was the hardest thing to do in the world was pay for a drink and thing home. So, um, and, and then he comes over and about the fourth, he never really says anything to me. But the, then after about the fourth time, he says to me, I haven't been a part or seen anything like this since like 64, 65 in London. This much talent exploding at one. So at that point, I really clamped my memory down. Like I'm going to pay attention. And so I, you know, and I felt so fortunate because I, I would have just floated through it like a dumb, you know, dumb kid, like you are, and you should be because you're young. Well, what year did you come down from Skinny Atlas, New York, seventy nine? And why, of all the towns in the country, oh, well, this, do you decide to go to Boston? And why, of all places, do you decide to go to a Chinese restaurant in Inman Square, Cambridge, to open a comedy club? Okay, well, I went to Boston because it was raining. I was hitchhiking. My father's in a VA hospital in West Virginia. It seemed like he might die, but then. I went down and hung out and he was, and he was well, he was going to, you know, he wasn't, he lasted a long time after that. But so then we, uh, you hitchhiked to Boston. I was hitchhiking to Boston from West Virginia. How much money did you have in your pocket? Maybe $4. $4. Yeah, maybe. And you have a, like a backpack. Yeah. And you yeah. have no job. Nothing. I, I was going to go to New York. So you're just essentially just camping everywhere you go. Basically, yeah. That's that's what I used. Homelessness used to be called camping. Um, <laughs> How so, do you eat? Where do you get the money to eat? Uh, well, I I was I worked at like labor pool in Boston. I would get up at yeah. I mean, I would get I would you know, three a.m. You're mustering, and I would go in and I would pack fish all day or. To the potato chip factory once, and and I and and then I got I would get hired to do crap that you couldn't get sailors to do who are, are legally obliged to do what the navy tells them, but they would give it to me. And then these you know and these people from labor pool got you know half the money I made. But uh, well, that was a company labor pool, so they'd pay you let's say seven dollars an hour, oh, and you yeah. make three fifty, and they right. make three fifty. Right, right, right. But anyway, I'm coming to Boston. No, I'm come. I'm I'm just going to go to New York. I think from yeah, I'm going to hitchhike to New York after the right after the Goldthwait and up at home in Skin Alice. Uh, Let me preface this for everybody. Skinny Atlas, New York, was a place that founded three comedians that I know: Tom Kenny who was called Tom Cat in the early years. And Tom, most famous thing you would know him for right now, if you have kids, is he's the voice of SpongeBob SquarePants. Bob Goldthwaite, who obviously is a tremendous director, a tremendous performer, innovative performer, came from up there. He was Bob Cat. And the reason why they took on the cat at the end of their name is because Barry Crimmins, of all people who you would think would never have a nickname, when he was in Skidinapolis and he tried a comedy and tried starting some comedy nights and then rallied around and hosted some nights, he called himself as a nickname Bearcat. Well, no, I didn't. I didn't. That was my—we're watching the movie The Alamo when we're playing high school football, and— and and Wayne says of Richard Widmark, who's playing Jim Bowie, he's meaner than a little bear cat. And a couple of my, I was doomed at that. 
because I was considered not mean, but, you know, I was within the rules of the game in those days, you could really harm people. <laughs> so I did. Um, and that's it. Uh, but I was known as Bearcat. But I never once in my life said, hi, I'm Bearcat to anyone. But but there was an ad in, when we put the ad in to see if anybody else wanted to do some comedy because my pal Stephen Leahy was leaving to go back to college. Um I, I I asked, you know, in the in the Syracuse put them to put an ad in the Syracuse New Times. Well, there was a chef named Barry at the restaurant, and so they had they said, "Well, we put Bearcat on there." So Goldthwaite and Kenny saw Bearcat, and we're like a me, like Bearcat. <laughs> what kind of a jerk calls himself? <laughs> and and then it took forever. But it was like you know, twenty eight years later. I go, Goldthwait, I knew you were dumping on me when you were doing it. I knew it. I knew it. And he's going, no. And he lied forever for like 20-something years. And then one night I broke him. We're in Syracuse. And he's driving. And he's like, I had him laughing so hard. He with the car is for I'm like, all right. I did it. <laughs> you know, he and Kenny were, yeah, Bobby and Tommy. So I'm hitchhiking. Yeah. It's raining like hell. And I want to get, I want to go to New York, but I'm like, the guys are like, well, I'm swooping around New York because I'm going to Boston. I'll take you to Boston. I go, screw it. Boston's in the American League. That's, <laughs> that's where it all happens. Fate is such an amazing I'm thing. Amazing. You're hitchhiking. And back then, for those of you who were a little younger listening, hitchhiking was very common. I would hitchhike all over the place until one day a man put his hand on my leg and I said, I am never hitchhiking again. Yeah. And I got out of the car and that was it. I would walk or ride a bicycle. But back then you would hitchhike at night. And the fate of knowing that that guy who drove by at that moment was going to Boston, that changed your whole life forever. Yes. And maybe a couple other people's too. Doesn't that blow you away? Yeah, yeah. I got hit by lightning. Random What guy. if the guy just didn't stop? What if he didn't see yeah, you? Yeah, I know. I know. You know what that means? Camden, New Jersey would have a tremendous comedy scene today. <laughs> <laughs> but also, this is what blows me away, and permission to speak freely. Yeah, please. You're a guy who experienced one of the most horrible things in the world, yeah. where you were in your own home, mm -hmm. which is supposed to be safe, right. and that happens to you. Right. And then 15 years later, you willingly get in somebody's truck and hitchhike, what are you doing? Why would you do that after you've gone through what you've gone Why through? Why would I do it? Yes. Well, because it's not a continuous line. It's not a, you know. What do you mean it's not continuous? Well, not in your head. I mean, you just do. I mean, like I, first up, anything that happens to a little kid, they just think it's part of the deal, you know, or whatever. You just kind of like, really? And no one talks about it. Okay. I don't talk, no one, you know, it's just, it, it was just this traumatic thing that happened to me that I didn't, you know, I was so young, four. But you know, no one has to talk about it. It's in you. But when I'm hitchhiked, no, but I don't care. And by that point, honest to God, I had, I had hitchhiked a lot and I had a couple of creeps along the way and I made it clear, I will fucking kill you. If you and, I, and I said that uh, I'm hitchhiking down to Lancaster, Pennsylvania when I was in high school still. And some guy picks picks me up and like, oh, you know, guys, so you play sports. Well, you like to be in the showers of guy. And I just go like, listen, 
how much further are you going? And I made, I'm, I was that much of a heart. I go like, no, I'm going as far as you're going. But you, if you fucking come near me, I will choke you to death. And what kind of ride do you have with a guy who picks you up, gives you a ride, and you say to the guy giving you the ride, I will fucking kill you? Um, How much tension well, well, is in the truck or the car? You know, actually, it sort of broke the tension. Because, you know, the whole decision, the ruling had been handed down. But this guy was like such a... And it was, and it was night. And it was sort of like, you know, like lights and the guy it's like it's like film you know it's like this like face guy and, and you know like he was uh he was just you know like a, i remember he had like a top coat on and and like brown i uh, know i'm sorry black uh uh rimmed gla- glasses and and you know and and you know clammy <laughs> and it was just like uh you know but you but knew- i wish i w- i mean if i knew then if I had worked through things, because what you mentioned before, you got to go through things, not around. So I went through what happened to me as a kid when I had a chance. But I was so young, I didn't have a chance then. And then I just, you know, I lost my childhood, Barry. Too. I was in, I was, it was like, the, you know, I had PTSD. I was anesthesia. I was, or, you know, I mean, I was numb. And so, uh, so when I, figured out what the deal was then i really worked through things and you learn a bunch of stuff from that like you know first off you learn not to take life so personally it's not completely based around you you're just in it you know so i felt very lucky when i figured that part out because a lot of stuff they people get kind of you know the shoots they put you in is as an abuse survivor uh, are meant to like, well, I don't know if it's meant to do this, but, but they really make people feel like if the whole world doesn't come up to you and apologize to you for what happened to you, then you're still being tormented and you're good at being tormented, aren't you? <laughs> you know, and I don't, you know, and I was tired of being good at being tormented. So uh, I don't want, so, you know, you, you have to, Provide that understanding and compassion to yourself, but understand why everybody else doesn't, because everybody else has been through crap you don't know anything about, you know, uh, or or you could only guess. But you know they're not, but they're dealing with their own pain and their own crap, and so you, you know t- taking planning to take it personally is just a complete waste of time. It's just a complete waste of time. You got to take care of yourself and find a few people that will hear what you have to say. When I started telling people what happened to me as a kid, they, you know, a lot of people were great, and some people went, "Are you talking to anyone?" Yeah, I thought I was talking to you. Okay, so you're in Boston doing these shitty jobs. You gave up oh, yeah. comedy. Are you actively looking for a comedy? Oh place? no, I was, I was, uh, I was in Boston to do comedy, but I just, uh, yeah, no. A guy who does research on everything decides he's going through Boston, doesn't hitchhike from Boston to New York. Boston didn't have a comedy scene. Boston oh. had Sean Morey and yeah. maybe Jay Leno doing some strip clubs in yeah. the 70s. 
It didn't have any places to do comedy. Maybe there was a little place, the comedy connection of the Charles Playhouse. Uh, every was, once in a while. They were yeah. the Jumbo Lounge, actually. Yeah, right, right. Uh, in Somerville. Yeah, yes. So there was nothing. So a guy who does all this research wants to start and do comedy. And he knows in New York there's eight comedy clubs probably in 79. There are four of them or whatever. But he decides to go to Boston where there's nothing. Why? Because it was raining. There, there was a torrential rainstorm, and I could have gotten out. I'm going to arrive in New York now, and I got four bucks on me, and I'm going to arrive in New York completely. That, that's, logistically speaking, <laughs> that's a big issue. Like, now everything's soaked. So whenever anybody meets me, I'm going to have, like, mildew on me. So I go, he's going to Boston. They go, fine. Boston's in the American League, and we go to Boston. That's all. And and as far as this planning, everything, I, you know, I, I mean, when I'm a kid, people ask me, oh, I did a comedy. I said I had to spend several years of being a, I had to turn several years of being a screw up into research. <laughs> so, um, so you're in Boston, you're soaked, you have $4, you're doing these shitty right. jobs. Yeah. What's next? Well, I, well the, but the first weekend that I'm there is Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> you're going to get a I don't care. They can even be mad. Okay. But it's Memorial Day weekend, and and I I go and I look at the paper. They're doing a comedy show at a place called the Springfield Street Saloon. So I go over, and I bluff my way on stage. Have a great set. How many times had you been on stage in your life at that point? Oh, maybe a, maybe I'm sure at least a hundred. You know, um, I, I mean, I started in the early 70s, but it was the main thing in those days was finding anywhere you could ever do it. So getting a chance to develop was the hard, now, like, you know, so they're opening up the borders, Syria to open micers. Anyway, I kill. And the people who run that show, they had another show down in the theater district. Um, uh, they say to me, I go, this is great. Yeah. But Boston, you know, but they, they say out of nowhere, Boston will never be a weekend comedy town. And I just said, really? <laughs> That's what, in my head, I'm already, and I'm not Mr. Business or anything. I'm immediately going like, That's what you think. You know how good these people are? Because, you know, I go, and Gavin Sweeney. Clark, in there, you know, the, just a big one, <coughs> Bill Campbell and <coughs> Chance. Chance Langton. Chance Langton. And, um, My mentor. <laughs> Chance Langton was a bar singer, kind of a guitar comic. Yeah. And I think Barry had a lot of influence on Chance because as difficult as it was, and Chance eventually almost overnight it seemed like got rid of the guitar for almost most all of his act and did straight stand up for the whole time and then would pick up the guitar yeah. at the end and he had a show at the ding ho uh, too yeah he's a shrewd guy there is one thing where he was a lot like you yeah he was an entrepreneur yeah He's awesome. one of the few Boston comedians who started their own and thing. That's that's one more com these comedy. Everybody complains about the, just hustle it, you know. That's just part of the job. I like the 
because I've been this left-wing political centrist, it's weird. I never got the full benefit of how well the end, you know, so I, but the good part of that is I, I've had to wake up and hustle every day of my life. I've had to like, well, okay, I can get, uh, I'm good through November, you know. Um, so you're in potato chip factories and fish factories. Yeah. What happens next? I keep going back to the Dingo because I knew the room was great. The Springfield Street Saloon, which became the Ding Ho, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So so I would go back, and then I, Shunley and I, and the first night I was supposed to work at the, so anyway, Shunley hires me to be the bouncer, and, uh, and. Bouncer for what? At a Chinese restaurant? What is a Chinese restaurant? Because they still had a lot of music book there, but they weren't doing that well with it, you know, and. Uh, it was like the old bands that used to come to the other place charged them beyond list price to not draw like they used to. It was yeah. So I'm there the first night. Well, I on my way over, remember they had those little news brief. This news brief brought to CBS. It's like six fifty five. There would be a thing on from CBS News, and it would be just, or two six fifty eight or whatever. But there would be this little news capsule they would give. And in those days, it was like, well, so I'm because there was it wasn't a twenty four hour news cycle. So I'm looking across the room. I'm getting ready to go over and work my first night as a bouncer at the Ding Ho and. And I see Thurman Munson's picture, and I go, oh, he's, I please let him just have been arrested for something, because otherwise he's dead. And I walk, and he's dead. Got killed in the plane crash, practicing takeoffs and landings so he could get to his family more often. No one ever says that. That's what he was doing. Good guy. Um, so, uh, I go, and I almost don't go in. I go, man. This is a perfect excuse to not, but now I, you know, but I went, I just, I did. Cause I like Sean and I didn't want to screw him. So I went in and this guy comes in. I'm there for, I'm there for a while. Sean's watching me and the people are going like, Hey, is the band any good? I go like, no, the band's terrible. Go away. By the way, this is the owner who pays me behind me. So that's why I'm saying that. You know, because I don't want to have a job at all, ever. Of course, the band's tremendous. It's $4. Cough it up. So um, I, so this guy comes up to the door. Sean's standing there with me. And he goes like, I don't pay the cover. He's like this glute kind of, you know, you know, whiskey scented, you know, uh, you know, a person of my Irish heritage. And I just just like oh you it got you could just tell the guy thought he was really charming and he wasn't <laughs> so so he goes and, and shenley and but shenley goes like no it okay he lets him go go by then he goes i see him go to the bar he goes like give me two beers and he, he doesn't pay for the beer i don't pay for beer then he turns around and announces to the room hey i heard thurman munson got traded to the angels i went over Picked the guy up. He was bigger than, well, considerably bigger than me. I picked the guy up, scuffed the neck, bam, through the front. He used his head to open the front door and said, get <laughs> out of here, never come back. And, and Shun Lee, and they go like, well, this is fun while it lasted. And Shun Lee, and I come back in the building, and Shun Lee goes, that was great. He a bully. Always bully me. Every day, 
Come in, bully me. Want free food, free beer. Bully, 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 bully. You know, and and so uh, he never came back. Uh, he never came back. And so suddenly, that was always like this, like like security deposit. Was suddenly I got rid of. I didn't even know. I just I just sort of like you know got rid of the bully because like oh this guy's a piece of crap. But it was also like. Hey, Thurman Munson's playing for the Angels now. Like, Shut the fuck up. You know, it's just like, bam. And it just, it, it got him right probably to about the, in the middle stripe of Springfield Street. So when do you have the conversation with Sean Lee about comedy? Tell oh, me oh, specifically what? how the conversation By, goes. And I want you to tell me what your original deal was. By the end of the night, that night, after I throw him out, after I toss that guy out, he, Shen says to me, you want book all? You handle entertainment here. I go, sure. You deal with it. I don't want to talk to him. You know, he didn't want to talk to you, basically. <laughs> you know, so I go, yeah. I'll, I'll, and I go, but I, I want to put, I explain to him that night, look, comedy is coming People like it, you know, Saturday Night Live, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, it's something different. You know, it's this new, it's going to really be a big deal. And he goes, I don't, and Shenley is like, not even paying. He just goes, you get people here, you know, uh, that's great. And and I was supposed to get half the club, you know, that was my deal. Um, half of the door and the bar or just half of the door? No. Half of whatever it eventually was worth. I was supposed to be the partner. Did you ever sign but, a contract? No, of course not. And no, and by the way, by the way, you know, like, I, and from the start, I wanted to pay the comics. I wanted to take care of people because I just felt like, you know, having been around the country, they've just put you through this ordeal before they put you on stage. It's ordeal and they make you feel like shit and, and really under judgment. But and Barry, when you're charging like Wednesday nights with Lenny Clark, you're charging a $3 cover yeah. charge. Okay. The place, if it held 125 people, it was a miracle. It, 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 it held about 143. Okay. And then when you, 140. We got to over 200. Okay. In there. <laughs> Let's pretend you got 200. Yeah. That's $600. Right. Okay, not a lot of money to pay I the paid comedian. Low, I, but, uh, but, you know, I think originally for, it started lying, I think it was 75. We would just pay people if we didn't make the money, but we almost immediately made the money. We almost immediately covered, you know, what the guarantees. And then when, and then when we did better than that, I just split the money up among everyone. And I... You know, and I felt I was making an investment in my own future. <laughs> so what you're saying is out of 100% pie on a certain night, let's just pretend, okay, right. there's $1,000 at the end of the week. Right. Uh, let's just pretend there is okay. for one of your first weeks when it started uh, going. Okay. Out of that $1,000, how much did you make? How much did Sean make? And how much did the comedians make? Sean made the booze and the food. I, uh, the comics got the door. I know, but out of the thousand dollars, so Shun gets zero. What does Barry Crimmins get for being the zero. person who's running it? And what do the comedians zero. get? Zero. Comedians got their, their pay guaranteed by Shun, 
but basically he was doing well. I mean, he was doing well. He didn't no, have I, anyone in there. I know he was doing well, but I'm getting that. But I'm just saying, how was the money broken down? Like, how did you but make I a didn't living? Have a, we didn't make deals in those days. It was just like, wow, we get to keep doing this? Yay. But you're running and booking it. You don't pay yourself a salary for that out of the money I that comes didn't. in? I didn't. I never did. So how do you, where do you live? Uh, no, because I, I would, well, that was one thing. I would every month. I you know I had a room in somebody's apartment and it was a hundred fifty bucks a month something and I would you know and I would say Sean I every month that's what I got so that's what I got I got the price of that but other than that uh, and then I would if I wanted to go eat at the SNS or something I would take ten bucks out of it so you know that was that and that but that was it nothing else. but I would go do other shows so i know that but you started the ding host did you start full-time or how did you start what well was the first i schedule? mean as soon as shun said as soon as shun said uh we're doing you know uh well so i immediately so i go to the comedy connection that's something i tell you i go to the comedy connection and i go we're gonna do full-time comedy and and they're uh you go like, and you guys are there. You can you can be it all the time. I offered them. I offered them the club out of honor because that's why I found the club. So it reverts to them. But so the owners of the comedy connection at the time were Paul Barkley and Bill Downs. Right. And so you went to them. You said, "I'm opening in Cambridge full time. Yeah. I'll give you guys the opportunity to come in right. and run it." So so the night we're supposed to start. The night, They've got a show. They're they're scheduled. This is one of their sporadic shows at, at the old Springfield and then the Ding. The, uh, and so it's a great show. The place is jammed. I've taken out a globe ad, which is a you remember I got a globe ad. Well, so I, you know I, you know we at the time cost around two hundred and fifty dollars yeah, for those. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I actually I think it was it was a real small but it was in there you know I'm but it it was maybe a, it was at least a buck and a quarter which is huge yeah, to us Boston Globe yeah so um and with the place is jammed and I'm telling them look we're gonna announce we're doing it tonight and like, oh yeah that's good at the end of the night they go up on stage and say well it's our last show here we're going to Tommy Mars. Which, by the way, was like a horrid room. Good, good luck to you. you know, the, the thing was just, it was physical. And after we got it going, it was really physically. It was great as a comedy room because, you know, all those rooms were like a rectangular, and they put it at the far end of the rectangle. Like, no, put it in the middle of the, you know. So the thing was was great that way. But anyway, those guys didn't, uh, you know, the, the same guys in Boston will never be a weekend comedy town uh but they really did screw me that night you know because i'm i heard it we are not coming back to the thing i went i was like but but two minutes after they screwed me i went oh this is tremendous i get to run this this myself i don't have to be you know i i did the right thing and you know and and then they openly fucked me (laughs) so so you know okay you're on the record thank you and i like those guys you know but really but you know you know who you are and you openly fuck 
<laughs> so tell me how you start. What's the first schedule at the Ding Ho? I wish you asked this because I, I mean, I would have brought, I think I have the second year's calendar and you just look at who was on those shows and you go, you would pay, you couldn't pay enough money to have that show done. But did you start full time right away? Monday you started and you went through Sunday? Oh, just... no, right away we went from Wednesday to Sunday. And I, uh, so Wednesday. Tell me the first show of your regime. So Lenny was hosting. Who else was on? Oh, my God. Everybody came in because it was like, wow, they're doing an open stage time. If you're ever on at the connection, you're on here. And so they all show up. So you got Steve Sweeney, you got Lenny Clark, you got Don Gavin, DJ Hanard at the time, who turned into Hazard. You got Martin Olson at the piano. Yeah, playing the piano. You got Stephen Wright there? Uh, He, not yet. Okay, you got Jack Gallagher on? Absolutely. Okay, who else do you have? Uh, Paula Poundstone there yet? Bill Campbell, Paula was there. Bill Don, Campbell, Mike Donovan, Mike Donovan, Donovan amazing. Mike, Mike Donovan, Donovan used yeah. to do a Celtics routine with yeah. Johnny Moe. All right, yeah. He's in the documentary. He has an amazing scene in the documentary that shocked me because you see this enormous rant by Barry uh, against Ronald Reagan and everything that happened during his regime, and then it cuts to Mike Donovan Therefore, who talks about how. Ronald Reagan, he revered no. Ronald Reagan, and uh, is just a fascinating. Now I am filleting the Waffen SS in hell. <laughs> Thank God Nancy taught me that trick with Frank Sinatra's scrotum. You <laughs> 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 ruined. Okay, so I want you to tell me the uh, first time, the first show at the Ding Ho in Inman Square, Cambridge, with all these legendary yeah, comedians. Yeah. I want you to tell me about the opening night and the excitement about it. And then I want you to tell me the night where you went home before you laid your head to rest that night, (laughs) you said to yourself, holy shit, it's on and I'm never going back. This place is massively successful and I never have to worry about it not being successful again. Well, yeah. I, the thing is, you had to worry about it being successful. <laughs> but anyway, uh, it was, you know, I've always been good at making money for other people and horrible for doing it for myself. And I'm such a, I'm an empath, you know. I'm a tuning fork for agony. Anybody who's in trouble, <laughs> anyone who's in trouble, I help out, you know. And so I, you know, like what I made, I would end up, I mean, there are people who are millionaires today whose rent I paid in the eighties and it would be kind of like, maybe you could get in that, you know, and that, no, I don't want to, you know, I'll I'll say this much. It sure wasn't Stephen Wright, but anyway, uh, those days, I wouldn't really think in terms of, it was so fluid there was just so much happening that the idea that I would go, oh, we're good now, was like, I was so overwhelmed. And I'm not a business guy like you. I don't have your kind of genius for taking care of that stuff. I just like, I so I'm just like bluffing. I'm like way too much attention to some details and totally like, let it go. Let's just take the first week that every single show yeah. sells out. Yeah. You're not thinking to yourself, hey, we did it. No, <laughs> but I don't even remember when that happened, but it did happen. You know, we were jammed. 
people were lined up around the corner with their, you know, this is before every plastic, they, they like literally, I would look outside and I would see these people with money in their hands, just holding it. And like, I think it's this much. They're guessing the amount. And it's all word of mouth. There's no radio ads. Well, there's no... we had, the, we were on WCAS in Cambridge with the Constant Comedy radio show. Uh, oh, we all a, know that reached a lot of people. Oh yeah, it was just, it, but it was a really. But you want to talk about target marketing? It was, you know, I mean, it was an AM radio station that played the dead. You know, like so these, so there was a certain element of hipsters of that vintage that came in to the club, and it eventually, and what eventually ruined everything was the goddamn cocaine. That's what really wrecked things in Boston is the cocaine. It was. People, uh, well, they just they they didn't they stopped being being reliable except for you could be guaranteed they were doing cocaine you know I, and uh, I was never you know I'm not old hippie afraid of uh, I'll walk right through the medicine cabinet with you and tell you everything probably from personal experience but I. Uh, Cocaine is, my friend Tim Walko said, it's like, I don't like to stay up late and uh, complain about my little league coach. And that was basically what it was to me. It was just, and, and someone else said it was the, it was the drug for people who hated hippies. <clears throat> and I think that was true too. Um, and people didn't realize it was a hippie running the thing. Oh, it was an old, you know, I mean, it was, as my friend Billy Bragg says, if I have to become a millionaire promoting socialism, I'm willing to pay that price. <laughs> so, when was the first time at the Ding Ho that you saw somebody using cocaine? What was the circumstance? Who? Well, was you it? know, I mean, I probably it wasn't like a, oh my god because it wasn't. I'd been around enough drugs, but I was like, wow. I just not, I, I probably what happened was I went. Well, a lot of people are doing cocaine. And then, you know, I did a line or two. And first off, and then I, I then I did, the, yeah, I don't know if you remember the spit, I used to go, like, you people better be careful because one of these days they're going to start putting cocaine in the cocaine. You know, <laughs> you know? And, <laughs> and they did. And that's when it really got bad. Because, like, you guys think you're getting high. Wait till you actually, you know, and, and then, like, once in a while, the real cocaine would come through. And I would, I could tell just by, like, you know, I could, the temperature of the room would go up two degrees. See, all these guys are sort of coming from straight jobs and going into comedy. And to me, that was the straightest job I ever had. So I was like, being, I'm becoming more responsible. So we passed, and the, the ships passed the night very quickly. And they, now they're all doing coke. And I used to say, you guys want to get high, I'll get, get some acid. You know, see if we're looking for the dealer at midnight you know like see how much you know like you want to get high uh, this shit will get you high but it's not like you know and back in those days you know we paid in cash and midnight the coke you pay paying cash at quarter 12 and at midnight the dealer's there tell me one story at the ding ho something happened involving cocaine that just blew you away and it's like you realized holy shit we're in trouble here. Well, that's why I left the Ding Ho. I get in a cab. I'm down playing the Connection on a weekend night. I'm going back to the Ding. The cab driver goes, I go, I'm going to a place called Ding Ho. Oh, I know Ding Ho. Okay. She's like, what are you going over there for? 
going over to score some coke. And I'm working 100 hours a week, literally. You know, I'm there. See, all the footage you see of me in that movie and shit, it's all, that's all taken at 2 o'clock in the morning. But no one's there at 8 o'clock or 10 o'clock in the morning with me booking shows, doing what's, you know, hustling, you know, uh, promotion. Uh, so, I mean, I was there all the time and working really hard. And then for them, for them to, you know, for it to just become this cocaine, for it to be called that. So I go over the thing and there's, and, you know, and these people, they're doing so much coke. After this cab driver goes, you scoring coke? What are you going there for? And I just went, that's, we're more known for coke than comedy. So I was, so this went over and, and I'm kind of boiling. And then I go over, I lean on the cigarette machine. I used to have those in those days. I lean on it. And looked down. There's two lines of cocaine there. That they've been doing so much coke that someone forgot to snort it. <laughs> you know, so that, that I walked in the kitchen. I said, "Sean, I, I am done here. I am done. I will, I will make arrangements for who takes over for me." And the person that took over for me, you, you know, used to deal a little coke. And I said, "I give you this job if you stop." dealing coke and the guy that took over for him was killed the the next the official coke dealer to the boston comedy scene and this guy's just a guy and you know i was always nice to him because he was friends in one of the boston comics and then suddenly everybody's like i can't believe he's there and and but but what i had said to the other guy was look the size of your collective monkey. This is serious. You're handing a lot of money. You got a lot of drugs. On the day when they know you have the most money and the most drugs, they're going to come and kill you for it. And that's what they did to the next guy. And and they like chained him to a chair. It was like the Boston mob, but they were they tried to make it look like Colombians. Anyway, that's another story. But uh, what another story though. But um. You know, I just hated the whole thing because I'm, 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 it's my nature to want to take care of people and know they're okay. And when they were doing that crap, they weren't okay, you know. So I was just very upset about it all the time. I can't. So did you come back to the dingo to book it after that? I left. I was pissed. And then I went back like 20 minutes after I left. I go, and by the way, though, Saturday, the Saturday show's mine because <laughs> I never gave myself a show there. I go like, okay, now I get a sh- yeah, yeah. By the way, that Saturday shows of mine. The last time I was there, I sold off four shows on a Saturday night, complete dead stone sellouts, and I come in Monday to get my my stuff, and uh, you know the same day you got the sign, I never knew about that, and I came in Monday, and there's plywood over the door. You saw the plywood. The plywood's over the door. It's like plywood. <laughs> you know, like, I sold out four shows. So like, how are we... Well, Shun Lee had gambled away the uh, the uh, tax money, so... Yeah. And playing Mahjong. Oh, no, dominoes. Lana Dennett. Did you ever see Shun again? No. And I've looked for him. What yeah. year was this? 
I think it's my my guess is going to be eighty three. Eighty three. You get there, the place is boarded up, yep. and you never spoke to him again. This is a man that was like a great friend to you, yeah, and, and no. not one comedian ever saw him again. Not that we know of. That's amazing. Uh, Mike Clark was in a little touch with him for a while, but he just was gone. He was just he just evaporated. I think he owed money in Chinatown. So he really had to do, was, he had to disappear, I think. I mean, I stuff I didn't get. I ne- you know, I mean, I don't know why gambling gambling's a vice, but I don't like it. I don't you know, I feel like my life has been enough of a gamble. The idea of going like, oh, I'll put you know, once in a while. I won some money on Syracuse basketball team before, but that was just Oh yeah. All right. So I'd like to go way, 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 way back okay. now. Okay. So I wanna know what your family was like in Skinny Atlas, okay. New York, okay. your mom, your dad, your okay. brothers and sisters, what uh, life was like for you. Uh, okay. And take me back to your childhood uh, uh, and then go through it as much as you can that you feel comfortable with and sure. then let us know what was the first inspiration in your life after you go through that story of Interesting. That's a good question. what brought you to wanting to be in this business. Um, okay. I, uh, was born in, uh, Kingston, New York. My parents lived in Saugerties at the time. But when I was very young, we moved to Skinny Atlas, New York. Then my father, through the VA or whatever, you know, he got a, a loan. They bought a tract home in North Syracuse in this place called Bellwood, and 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 uh, and so we lived there till I was about five, and then I came back. Just to, I, I went to kindergarten. It maybe it was six that we moved back to Scales, but I went to kindergarten in that town. But my that was where. Uh, so anyway, I had three sisters, and uh, my father traveled. So my I am two of my sisters are twins, uh, and they're four years older than me, and then my younger sister's five years younger than me. So my, my father traveled, and so I was just in this house, a bunch of females. And, you know, I think it maybe has something to do with me being kind of a feminist, but I'll, I'll, but on the other hand, there are, <laughs> it's when you're the only boy, it's just sort of like, I don't, could everyone stop talking for a little while, please? So, um I, but I would just sort of, and by that point, I had the, the babysitter's father had been coming over when I was very young and, and, and it raped me. And I had, you know, there was this thing where, like, my parents noticed as best they could by saying, like, well, you were always so happy and whatever. And then you just got kind of solemn. Let's go before this happens, you're four. You can't remember a lot when you're four. When I was four, my dad passed away, and I obviously oh remember God. that. Sure. So you're four. Your sisters are how old when you're four? My older sisters, I mean, she probably, depending on what time of year, because some of the real memorable stuff I know is the summer, so my sister's birthday's in August. So I, I think I was 
four. I just I was four, and she was seven. Okay, the other sisters, how old were they? Well, them two of the other seven, and the other one wasn't alive yet. Jenny. So there was twin sisters. Mm-hmm. Got it. Your mom would go out or work, and she'd hire a babysitter. Yeah, yeah, they would go out. Who was the babysitter? This this young girl. Now I realize, but I when mean, you say young, fifteen, eighteen, yeah, twenty-two. I, no, I think twelve or thirteen. So a thirteen-year-old girl was babysitting right. a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. Yeah, she would come over. She would really kind of groom me, you know, like get me. And then this guy would How would she have the wherewithal at 13 to groom you? Because I'm sure she'd already been abused. That's why I have nothing against her. It was her or me. I think that's how she felt. And I, and this was her stepfather. I believe, you know, or yeah, the, the male figure in the house anyway, whatever you would call so it. So you understood at four. Or no, you I went, didn't understand it. I understand it now. So you understand now that you think that it was a setup and she was bringing him over and she knew exactly what was happening. I I think, I don't think people in that kind of trauma think that specifically, but they sort of like this, oh, that horrible boiling ocean of lava is going to sweep over us again. I'll gird myself. That's what I think. Yeah. But it wasn't a situation through your recollections where the babysitter was upstairs and he just said, hey, I'm going to go downstairs no, and the play with Barry. No, the babysitter The babysitter was definitely in on it. You knew at four that she was in on it. Well, I know. And I mean, I don't know. I know now. I mean, she was in on it. I mean, when I put it all together, she was in on it. She, she, because, well, I also know because my sister at seven or eight, wherever she was, uh, uh, when my sister happened upon uh, me getting raped, the babysitter was right there and swooped her up and, you know, basically threatened her and, to, and to tried to threaten her into silence, but Mary Joseph tried to talk. So how did your seven-year-old sister and you at four yeah. get it to stop? She just said something. And it was like, and my, and it was like, sort of like, well, I don't. And then she just said, "They're being mean. They hurt Barry." That's what she said. She's a little kid, so, and, uh, um, at that point, and then, then the, then the babysitter lied and said, "Mary Jo was just such a handful." I never say this, but, you know, like once they knew she had, they. They like character assassinate my sister and and my parents just kind of go well we're not using this babysitter anymore we gotta find something this is not working out you know but they won't you know they could have been more assertive on our behalf they could have asked more questions but it's 1958 or whatever so uh that was it now barry i'm going to do something. I'm going to share something with okay. you that I don't think I've ever shared with anybody, but I'm going to share with you. Okay. When I was five years old, yeah, there was a 15-year-old boy in my neighborhood yeah. that molested me over and over again. And I told my mom what was going on, and she went over there, and it stopped. But this is the difference. What's odd is that I say this and I share this to the audience. I don't know why. Never affected me. I didn't get raped, but the guy was naked 
and he was excited and I didn't know what was going on and I was in this house or outside or wherever it was and I hung with him all the time and I didn't have a father. But the fact is, is that I look back on it even to this day, a hundred people, probably 99 would say, oh my God, this is going to affect me for the rest of my life. It never even had a blip on me. It just was like, okay, that guy was sick. I was there and I'm moving on. But it wasn't as horrific as your situation. It doesn't, I mean, but the fact is, is that it happened. So I want to know in your world, when you talk to people, am I an anomaly or is it common for people to have no effect sometimes on things like that and well, they just move on I mean, in their life? First off, um, first off, it's all specific. It's very specific, you know, and there's some people that approach me and they have almost identical stories. And one person is a really having a hard time and the other person is doing pretty well. And it's just, it's just, and so luck of the draw wise, whatever you got an extra dose of resilience and tremendous, you know, I did. I mean, I think I did too. I really but, want to know sometimes if I want to know anything, I want to know what's wrong with me because right. I just really honestly, it's embarrassing. I feel maybe I think I know why. Yeah. Because when you're four years old and you see your dad die. Yeah. And then your mom's crying all the time and there's that heaviness in the house right. about that. At that point, I guess when I was five or six or whenever it happened, nothing could compare to the level of pain that I was witnessing for other people. So. To me, it was like, this is like breathing. Well, you were in pain already. So, I mean, you were already numb. You were on that much pain. You're in that much pain. You're, you're numb. So, that worked on the perpetrator's behalf. That worked on the perpetrator's behalf, I think, at the time. It would be... But, you know, everybody's, everybody's different. It's why they should, you know, like... Like people, you heard me do the bit last night, but it's, it's like people go, oh, you might get bad knees. I'm an old ball player. I'm 63. My knees hurt. And people go, oh, smoke some marijuana. And I go, you know, like, and, and I know. And then, but I mean, I have in the past, and, and for 10 seconds it works. And then I go, there's something tremendously wrong with my knee. You know, like everybody's specific. So people respond to different, th different things, you know, uh, or the same things in different ways. Uh, and, and, you know, first off, I'm so sorry that happened to you because particularly the reason the guy got away with it because you were so numb from the incredible trauma of losing your dad. I never knew that about you, your father dying when you were that young. And I'm really sorry, Barry. I'm sorry oh. that by the time I met you, I mean, you had, you already had like 17 years and of not having a father by the time I met you. That's, you know, wow. You know, you were a veteran orphan. Your mother, you did tell her. So that's got everything to do with how it didn't affect you. Because there was someone you could go to who rectified the situation. So it wasn't just left with you. you know, people get abused as kids. And they, and they think something's wrong here. And no one takes the rap and says, yes, something is wrong here. So then they start thinking something's wrong with me. 
and then they behave in a way, and then the self-loathing develops, and they and they, they behave in a fashion that that corroborates the self-loathing, that makes sense of it, you know, and you know, and then that, and then it's over. You're screwed. So your mom, listen, that so you think not. What happened was justice happened. Your mother did everything she could, and you knew you could go to somebody, and she stopped it, and there was some order in the world. It made sense, and the right thing happened. So, you know, the reason you, what you're feeling when you feel okay is how tremendous your mother was. So, in other words, what I did at six, yeah, you did at 38. When your dad passed away, he never knew. He did. He did know. When did you tell him? When I, you know, in the 90s when I first wrote about it. it, it I, I thought it was very important. There's just no no male survivors that suffer saying anything then, so I thought it was very important. I'm sorry I keep going back to this, but what I'm trying to get to is that you carried this inside you all the time. You so never even like, talked well, to your sister like, about like, it who yeah, saw it. Yeah, you know, that's who eventually talked to me. But I, I, the, you know, it was like, it's like walking around with this radioactive anvil at the core of your body. Then what gets hard is when you divest yourself of it, the wind, you feel like the wind's whistling through you because you're just so used to carrying around this weight that belonged to someone else. It was that horrible person's problem it wasn't me so when that so the trick was to learn how to fill in that hole that the wind was whistling through what i used to do i mean when i first but you filled it with stand-up i interviewed the greatest acting coach of my generation Uh larry moss Uh and what he said was everybody who's talented has a hole that's been blown through them wow and they use their craft to fill the hole spackle yeah. and they just spackle it up with their performance ability and everything they do a great show they act in a play they sing yeah. a song and then they're full and the next morning the hole is there again and they have to <laughs> fill it again and so you filled the pain with stand-up well yeah but no but then uh, but i also filled it by just having a good childhood because i realized i missed a lot of stuff because i was numb so i would pick up the paper and go hey you know Ron Guidry's pitching today for the Yankees at one o'clock. I would go get on the Eastern Shuttle and fly down to New York and go to, the, you know, I had to go up and go like buy the best ticket you could. And in those days, like it was uh, seventeen fifty. Is that okay? Yeah, I'm seven rows behind home plate, you know. And then I was just treating myself like a little kid, you know, just going like, "Do you want a hat? You can have a hat if you want." Yeah. If you see anything else, let me know. <laughs> and I've like, got a bunch of paraphernalia on. I'm just an idiot. But I'm a little kid. You know, that's basically. So I went back and had my childhood, and that's how I filled the hole. And, you know, mostly. I, I you know, hey, you want to read that book? Order it. You know? And so the first time you came out and anybody knew what happened to you, Take us through the day that you know in your mind you're going to say something somehow, some way, wherever it is, and then take us through the night when it happened, and then what happened, what kind of outpouring you had from your peers. So I was writing uh, the Dennis Miller Show, and... uh, you were writer on the Dennis yeah, Miller show, yeah. but by you know at Channel Five, and, and there was like like a, across from us was Hunks, 
which were like, quite frankly, a bunch of gay guys being sold to American women as the ideal that they should strive for. And they're outside my window going like, I, and they're just doing central casting gay t- guy talk. You know, you're you know, like, I mean, it's it's horrible for the women, I think, but it's it's hilarious on a million other levels. And they're and and I would go out and hang around with those guys and talk. You know, they're good guys. So and then um, we're right below supermarket sweep. And all I can remember, it would be people walking by with like styrofoam meat, and you know, like, and and one day I just look out my window and someone's walking by with it, like this giant uh, toilet paper rolls. It's like four pack of toilet paper, like you know, rendition of it, but it's way bigger than that. You know. And it says it's dramatic on it. <laughs> I just like. Why do they have dramatic toilet paper? It's like you gotta be kidding me. I gotta get out. And this is right when I started dealing with uh, what happened to me as a kid. So and, and so then, the Rodney King verdict comes down, and the town blows up, and everybody's dumping on these kids who are rioting and stuff. And I'm and I'm thinking, man, you know, shit happens to kids, you know. <laughs> People made some judgments about me, and I was just, you know, I was doing so well to even get to the point where they could make a judgment. I was just, yeah. so anyway, I go back to, I, and now I, it's just too much. I can't have, you know, be sitting next to supermarket sweep and hunks and writing the Miller. So I just take, I leave. I take an abs, leave of absence from the Dennis Miller show, and I, and I go home. And uh, and I'm pretty upset about this. So, so I decide to do a benefit for the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is just a great organization that's done great work against you know white supremacists and blah blah. And so Rodney King thing happened. I thought you know so I, so we do this show, and I have everybody in towns on this. Show. And 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 that day, that was when I really the day we're planning to do the show, uh, or we're doing the show. I was just, uh, I just knew I'm going to say something, but I didn't know if I was going to say much. But why did you know? Because I wanted to say, I wanted to talk about all these people not understanding these kids. I was hearing a lot of stuff on the news and like, what's happened to kids today? I don't know. I know what happened to me as a kid. And, the, and these kids, I can I could see the economic crimes. I could see the circumstances. They're on, I mean, you know, I could see the, you know, the, you know what they're deprived. Of. So I, I and, and in the meantime, living in the middle, but up on the hill, there's people driving by on their Bentleys, you know. So I, uh, so I just did that. So I, anyway, and it's sort of a free form rap. So that's what got me to it. And it, but it's funny. I do the rap. Yeah, I mean, it just comes out. But although Sweeney is, I got to close the show, and I go, Steve, I don't think you want to close this show. <laughs> no, no, no. I want to close. It's fine. I've gone on after you before. I go, yeah, okay. It's you know. I mean, at that point, it was like, sorry, Steve, I don't have the time. I do not have it right now. To be the producer, thinking in terms of you do not want to go on after that. Like I tried to tell you, that's it, but I'm I'm done. You know, fine, go on after me. 
But you started doing your act, though. Well, I was doing my act all night. I was hosting the show. But then towards the end, I just got up and, you know, uh, and just went through a sort of a litany of what I thought the problem was. And then then I said, and we don't relate to people, you know, and I think it's the first time I ever said there's sanity at the source, which means people have behaved in a, what seems to be a crazy fashion. If you get some context from him, you go like, oh, wow, what was crazy a minute ago is now ingenious. So there's sanity at the source, you know. So I, I think it's the first time I ever said that. And and I just said what happened to me as a kid. I said I got raped a bunch of times. And and uh, they, uh, you know, it was... Uh, everyone describes the audience. I don't really remember it. <laughs> it's just like get up so like take the air out of the room and send it to pluto and so you introduce steve sweeney what happens let's let's see you're you're the glow brusher sweeney sweeney goes up and he's just going jesus christ i ah well and then he starts trying to do you know characters (laughs) he's just stopping going once again going right back to jesus i can't i didn't know he was and he's Sweeney's doing all the hand, you know. So it's 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 tremendous. And I mean, it, he's my dear friend, and it's hit him, you know. Now he's got to go on. And I tried to warn him, but he was sort of like pulling Sweeney rank, like I will, I'll do it, but I'll be last. So it's like, okay, man. Why didn't you just do it after he got off stage? Because I was, because the show was a couple hours long, and I just I I didn't have I was. You know, I was in a bit of a condition at that point, you know, so I had to do it when I could. That was all. I have a personal question to ask you. Okay, well, let's thank God we're both here. Are you an alcoholic? Uh, I don't think so. I, Mark Twain said, when the others drink, I like to help. But I'm left on my own. I'm, there's nobody around. I'm like, you know, drinking water or whatever. When I knew you, there was never a time I saw you without a beer in your hand or within a foot of you. Yeah. Well, I, you know, yeah, that's right. But um, if I, you know, if and when I I pull that... uh, If and when I uh, say the word, uh, you know, I mean, uh, I'll I'll phone in my coordinates. But generally, like like here, up here, everybody's drinking, so it's like fine. I'm drinking, so like when everybody sees me, I'm having a drink. But generally, I'm alone. Do you want to know something? What? I've seen you two days here. I haven't seen you with a drink. Okay, well there you go. But I yeah. saw you last night. You were drinking water. I see you today. You're drinking Gatorade. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, when I knew you, you only had well, a beer I, in your I, hand, and that was self medication. Believe me, I mean, I was running hot. That was like steam. You so know? what's the longest period of time? that you've ever gone in your life without drinking an alcoholic beverage? Uh, well, not counting the beginning of it, uh, I, I, you know, probably maybe a, uh, maybe like a 15 months once. But it wasn't like, I'm not drinking. It was just like I wasn't drinking. No know. purpose to it. 
just you know, my girlfriend at the time was in the you know AA and. Uh, Did you ever go I, to meetings? No, no. I went. I went to some Al Anon stuff for some friends of mine because I, like, once they put me on the cover of uh, of Codependence Quarterly, <laughs> <laughs> I felt like I, uh, I felt like I needed, you know, to. Kind of learn about some stuff. My friend John Brown, who once puked in a wishing well, uh, really, yeah, <laughs> uh, was a big inspiration for me on that. Front. You really, honestly, not one moment in your life, in your entire life, have you ever said to yourself, "No, maybe I, I have a problem." Well, of course, of course, but you know, then the hangover ends, and you don't get. And I mean, I just, it's, it's. When the others drink, I like to help. Period. That's it. You know. And so, if you see me somewhere, the others are drinking. I'm drinking. But generally, I'm not. And and you know, I mean, and more and more, if I do my shows, I like every everything I drink all night. They see me drink on stage. I have like two thirds of a beer while I'm on stage, and then I don't even want it. I just want to go back and you know not talk to anybody for the next as long as possible. <clears throat> I, you know, lately I've taken to saying to people who want to interview me, I'll answer any of your questions so long as they don't pertain to me because I'm <laughs> so sick of my, you know, like, oh, what else do I think? What time do you put your shoes on, Barry? Well, I used to say the reason why I hate dating is I hate hearing my life story over and over again. <laughs> That's great. That's a great line, man. Um, by the way, can I just stop for a minute and congratulate you on everything you've done because... I think, you know, people presume because of what I've done that I dislike successful people because <laughs> I'm such a failure. But you, it's like you, you, you getting that club. First off, you have no idea how much pressure you took off of, of me by creating all the stage time you did, you know, uh, uh, you know, over, over on, uh, in Boston. And it was, I mean, it was great. So, I mean, you know, stage time is the lifeblood of comedy. And so you did, and then you went to New York and, and you know, and I've watched, uh, I'm almost being Jerry Lewis-like where I'm presuming everyone knows exactly what I'm thinking. <laughs> so I'm not saying, I'm just blurting the things. uh uh, by the way, I, of course, uh, know Jerry, and he's been wonderful to me. I'm a member of the Friars Club now, by the way. Really? They needed some young blood. So, <laughs> so um, uh, yeah, it was very nice. Um, but you, man, you had an idea, you went and did it, and then, you know, and I mean, you know, there's a lot of whiny comics out there. You know, to me, it was just like, well, go do what you want to do. You know, go hustle something, you know, uh, like uh, I've gotten in trouble before because they go like, well, it's, you know, they might not want my, my act might not be appropriate for their show, but let them know that their show might not be appropriate for my act. That doesn't do a lot of good commercially, but it's still, you know, I, pay, so anyway, I paid the toll for saying that and it's fine. No, but, but I appreciate you saying that about me. I always wanted to create stage time for did people and it was very important you, for me. And, and 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 you know and so these people like but again 
people just make the wrong judgments. Like I appreciate, like people think, oh, I'm this. Oh, he's made a fortune doing this. Like, well, good. You know, excellent. Encourage somebody else to create some stage time and hustle some stuff. You know, yeah, go ahead. So I will. You know, people people are shocked at how you know. You know how I get this from a lot. I love Stephen Wright so much because he never got so big that he wouldn't be enthusiastic about something worthy of being enthusiastic about. By the way, he's the only comedian in the history of my generation of yeah. comedy yeah. that since The Tonight Show yeah. has never risen higher, has never gone lower, stayed 65 miles an hour on the road the whole way, still does the theaters. His star has never gone down, never gone up, stayed what it was big and everybody respects him and there's not one other comic who i can say for 30 years can still do the theaters for 30 years for the moment yeah. lives on block island yep. has a wonderful life yep. what a great man i have to comment on something i want to ask you about this quote this is a great quote crimin says there are only a couple of things that he wants to accomplish <laughs> in his life uh before they put me, quote, in a little tile in the grand mosaic of life, unquote. And then he said, those two things are, I'd like to overthrow the government of the United States, and I'd like to close the Catholic Church. Could you comment on that? Well, you know, we just, you just got to set goals. <laughs> Incremental things, you can, you know, uh, uh I, when I say, over, I mean, I don't mean violent overthrow because I'm a, I'm a pacifist, uh, and so I wouldn't want anyone killed. Just I want them embarrassed out of power. <laughs> but, but you know, how do you embarrass them out of power? To tell the truth and get people hip enough to understand it. Um, Has there ever been a president of the United States since you have been a conscious adult yeah, yeah. that you revere? Revere would be pushing it, but you know, uh, <laughs> Revere. Um, <laughs> He's alluding to a town in Massachusetts, uh, and that's how they pronounce it. Revere. What Tell me it? the closest president that oh, made you oh, happy. Uh, Carter, but he dropped the ball in Central America. I, but what he did right was. And the reason they get rid of him, and Carter is essential to understanding what's gone on. They used him as an example of that's when the marketing people really took over, you know, uh, politics. And basically, it was like you can't tell any. Well, we've marketed this, and you know, the truth doesn't market well. You know, the fact that that the nukes that really represent threaten the American people are the ones that are deteriorating here that we keep building. You know, uh, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's all these things that you're not allowed. But if someone were truly a leader, a leader would tell you some stuff you don't want to hear. You know, rather than just what you want to hear. You know, but I mean, who needs a leader anyway? I'm not on a field trip. I'm not a moron. You know, I I know how to go to the museum on my own. So I'm no leader. I mean, you know, like, but you know, Carter, 
I'm trying to think. Well, you know, JFK, you know. Uh, but then, I mean, it's Johnson. God, Nixon. Nixon's like herpes. You think he's gone. He flares up. Gerald Ford, you know, stronger and more healthy America. So you didn't like Obama? I like, I, I, I'm to the left of Obama, but, uh, you know, I mean, I think he's done a wonderful thing. He's taken a sense of, a really effective census of how many raging racists there are in this country. It's like he encouraged it. A lot of people took off the hood in the last eight years, and now we know, and now Trump's coming along and asking them to put it on again. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you see what's happening now oh, with man. Hillary, oh. Bernie, and Trump. Well, I like Bernie because he talks about what the problems are, you know, really. And, and, and he appeals to these kids who, you know, who, who get, go, get conned into going to college, end up with insupportable debt. They don't get a gig that's going to help them pay this off. There's, they realize, like, they go to college, and then they're out in the street going, like, what? And, by the way, 30 years from now, there may not be a habitat you can survive in. So, you know, and the guy that talks on their behalf, they go, oh, they're so naive. Well, I remember when I was young. And it's like, no, their lives are on the line, and they're making a choice. They aren't naive. They're, they're, I, I like those kids. Um, the other, like Hillary is just, you know, they're, she's just so corporate, and I get problems there. And, you know, the, and the, and the, and the toupee of Dorian Gray, please. You know, like, he's just, uh, there's just something terribly wrong with that person. He's a, you know, he, he, he just projecting his self. I mean, you know, everyone makes jokes about the hair, but literally going out and doing that in public, there's something wrong. <laughs> I mean, there is something like, you know, what are you in that? Who is that band from Australia? Flock of Seagulls? You know, it's like, it's this nightmare. Obviously, he's with a beautiful woman who has style. He listens to his daughters who have he style. Doesn't, he doesn't, He do, but they, they just know they're not talked, you know. Don't touch the hair. Well, you know, yeah, there's just something. I mean, that's just tremendously like you got to be kidding. I, I, if I go bald, I'm bald. If I'm gray, you know, like I'm the only guy in show business with gray hair. But I'm me and Christopherson. <laughs> if you had any opinion of what's going to take place in the next six months and what's going to happen in November, what's your opinion of what's going to happen? Not I, what you want to have happen. No, no, no. Your opinion? Yeah, that's my opinion. It's I, I, what I want to have happen will never happen. But um, uh, I think, I think that the uh, as ruthless as Trump is, he hasn't seen ruthless yet because he's taking on the Clintons. And I th and 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 honestly, I think we're also smart enough as a, I, I hope we are, but. This guy's running for dictator, and it's very scary. And and you know, and everyone that makes the Hitler compare, they bring up Hitler, but literally, you know, pick someone more tinhorn. You know, there's a million of them. You know, it, it, it's not like you know, like it, it, he he doesn't he doesn't sink to the level of Hitler. You know, but but. He, a million other tin, tin horn dictators who had a bunch of people could do this, that, whatever. I mean, this guy is not, 
He's like, you know, he's jump off the cliff. I'll tell you why on the way. You know, everybody's stupid. You're stupid. They're dumb, stupid, dumb. You don't think people are stupid? Have you read the polls lately? You know, um, he's a dangerous man. So what's your opinion on what's going to happen I in November? I think he's going to get bombed. And that's, okay, so let's just, I think he will get, he's going to lose big. Now see, now see what I know. But I. But that said, the trade, see, shrewd enough to know, you take that trade stuff to uh, those horrible trade deals we signed. You take that to Pennsylvania. He talks about that all the time of the horrible trade deals, yeah, but yeah, you say he's going to get bombed. Do you agree that we made horrible trade deals? Yes. Yes, I do. I do. I just think, you know, I mean, like a guy who takes like four days to disavow the KKK is a little too much even for Americans. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like, I thought they were nice guys. That I thought. You know, I thought it was a a big lit up T. It turns out it was a cross. But uh, yeah, we they were beautiful. They loved me, those folks. Um, so so Hillary's gonna win in the landslide, is what you're saying? I'm saying that now. You know, and I, but I hate predictions. Like people who tell you what's gonna happen can't tell you what's happening generally so I, I you know I, I have generally avoid that although I have found that I've been a little prescient on occasion uh, but I just I think you know I mean this guy he just recently called for the Russians to help him out you know it's just sort of like hey spy on us you know and not realizing how tone deaf he is to say it. He's just like, because you know what it is? He's a CEO has been surrounded by yes men his whole life. And so he thinks like whatever he's ever said his whole life, everyone's gone, oh, that's brilliant, Donald. Yes. You know, and so he, he now he's in public all the time going like, and it's like, and there's a certain percentage of us that are going like, this guy's out of his mind. But he's used to being around these people. And you know, you see it in Hollywood or whatever. They but how is it possible that the majority of the population don't think that way? Well, you know, you could make, you know, the Three Stooges meet the Grinch, <laughs> and it would, <laughs> a lot of people would be watching. <laughs> All right, six degrees of separation. Yeah, that's I'm going to mention the name of somebody. Okay. And you tell me what comes to mind. Okay. Mark Marin. Uh good guy. Um should win an Emmy this year for his performance on his show. That that was really uh breathtakingly good and written by, you know, and everyone who worked on it, my buddy Bob Nickman's on there. The whole thing was just Amazing. So that's what I think of Marin. David Cross. Uh, you know, just uh, legitimately miserable, but, you know, never with me. Just incredibly dear and kind to me all the time. But, you know, like, but he just has, he just does not suffer bullshit at all. And that, and, and then, like, if you keep it up, there's going to be a sketch. <laughs> and you're going to get it or it's going to be in his stand up and you're going to get it and uh, I went to see him in uh, Durham, North Carolina this year I had a night off and uh, I went to see him and he just it was like we're hitting on the same subjects with different jokes but it was good to see someone else saying like okay here's the bullshit we have to go here's the next and you know there he was uh, 
So he's he's tremendous. Rosie O'Donnell. Uh, I know she performed early, early at the on. Day. At yeah, the yeah, day. Yeah, a long time ago. Um, she, you know, she was. Uh, I remember her from uh, when she was on VH1, and they had me on something, and I talked to her, and I kind of, and I don't think she would remember this, but I just said, "Smell dominated. Everybody's an idiot," <laughs> you know, and she was like afraid. I think to go along, like I was a spy or a setup or something. But then years later, I heard she saw the movie. And, you know, we have a similar background. And I got this lovely message from her. And she took this amazing picture from the movie with this other reflection in it. It was just amazing and sent it to me. Uh, you'd have to see it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I love Rosie. Bonnie Raitt. Just super talented. Uh, uh, really kind to me. Um uh, but you know, sort of always overrun when I was around because she's doing a show. Um, but uh, you know, part of that uh, no nukes, you know, mafia, and and always uh, there for a cause with uh, uh, the guacamole fund, uh, which Tom Campbell uh, runs. Uh, but it's a great. Uh, they they kind of know how to step in between where you need them artists and in good causes and put it together and bonnie's been a huge supporter of the guacamole fund margaret show uh yeah she's my my dear my dear uh she uh is so kind as to say that when she saw me work with billy bragg years years ago that it opened up her mind like wow you can say what you think you know and and so and then i didn't hear that forever uh and then she contacts me when the social media comes along and goes you know and she tells me the story and i go my god and we've been just close friends and she's just and she's also you know you know picked up the you know the torch robin carried for all those years in the bay area uh with helping people, you know. Stephen Wright. Uh, <laughs> no one will ever get, the best show ever is just me and him hanging around together because uh, we just kill each other, just kill each other. It's like, And it's like, I haven't seen him for four years and then we hang, you know, in like nine seconds, it's like the, we remember the last thing that was, you know. So uh, just the best, the funniest, the smartest, the most integrity, generous and kind and and incredibly humble. And here's the thing about him. He, and I was alluded to this earlier, he is still, he never got too successful to be enthusiastic about stuff. You know, he would, I mean, he'll go, oh, that was amazing. I mean, he really enjoys everything you know in a cool way you know even enjoys not enjoying stuff sometimes but enjoys like can you believe that we're getting to do this and you're like yeah steven you've been a huge star for 35 years now you know but he's still got that enthusiasm and that's that 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 comes from this 
brilliant humility. Like, because like, I mean, can imagine how much you could think of yourself if you were him, how smart he is, you know? Uh, so that's, that's Jackson Brown. Oh, man. I, he, he once said, thanks for making me look like a moderate, <laughs> which is good. Um, but uh, uh, I'm listening to him and, you know, driving up to northern New England and doing gigs and people are staring at me and I'm telling them about death squads in Central America. And then I would put Jackson Brown on and the way home I go, I bet if Jackson heard me, well, Goldthwaite, they want Goldthwaite to do some shows with Jackson. He couldn't do them. So he said, check this guy out. Jackson Brown's people checked me out and I ended up, so within months of like, I bet if Jackson Brown heard me, like, and then I'm on tour with him. So it was really like, you know, it was it was a Hollywood movie, sort of like, oh, I sure does love me some Jackson Brown. And then, like, cut to, to you know, 20 minutes into the movie, it's like, hey, Jackson Brown's going, where's Barry? I, you know, like, so I was so fortunate. And he's just such a, uh, just a wonderful person, you know, who, who actually as great as you think he is. And when you get to know him, when you're in the back room with him, he's even better. Like, it's very, like, it's all sorts of people, you know, pretty good at being in public, but it's like, you know, he like plays down what a good guy he is when he's in public. Just, I mean, he's just the best. And what a talent. You know, imagine writing a song at 16 that's, you know, now all these, you know, uh, these days. He wrote that when he was 16. 16 years old, you know, it's just a genius. Dennis Leary. Uh, what a great actor, really good actor. And, and, and what a good guy for taking care of all those uh, people from Boston. And I hear you say that, and I know Dennis was a guy who was maligned by a lot of the Boston comedy scene and then you see a guy doing so much great things for Boston and the firefighters. Well, How do you feel about that? How do you change your philosophy of things? I didn't have to change my philosophy at all. A lot of people came to me with some complaints and I passed them along and then say just someone and they get very successful and then you see the same people hanging around. With, but you were the guy they had you know, and I, I mean, I conveyed some things in my day, but I wasn't, and, you know, I got tagged a little too, but I, I, I don't care, you know, like, when it comes to uh, plagiarism, I just, I learned years ago, about 25 years ago, I just said, you know what, I'm going to write stuff I want people to repeat. <laughs> you know, if you repeat this, fine. So it's just a matter of filleting it down to the point where if you want that joke, you have to have this point. With it, you know, so I don't care. Paula Poundstar. Oh, just, uh, you know, she was an early, you know, a pioneer. Women should, everyone, but women comics all her debt, and every comic does. But, uh, Back in those days, I you know I think the reason there's so many more women comics these days is because of Title IX, because they get to grow up and play sports teams, and there's more camaraderie. And even if they aren't part of that, they run into other girls who are in school, you know. And and it, there's a lot of this just sort of that jocularity that 
guys get to have, you know. So that there wasn't that. Well, like I, I used to tell when I played football in high school, I would tell the cheerleaders, God, you should get some kind of team. Do something. I can't hear you. By the way, I can't hear you. You're out there. It's noisy out there. I don't hear anything. Like, and we don't know that. So um, Paulo was a courageous uh, trailblazer. Louis C.K. Uh, you know, that's thank God I was nice to that kid part too. Well, what a pro he comes in. He's like gonna say, I, I said to him yesterday. I said uh, you came in to. Th- I hit men spe- spend less time when they fly into a city than you did to do the special. And he had an idea about everything. And he put it together. He knew what he wanted, and he's gone. It's just like, and you You're know, talking about shooting in Lawrence, Kansas, when we did my special, we oh. shot my special. He was just, you know, and other than that, you know, he's this guy. I'm working with him, but it's like you got to read like the AP wire to figure out what's going on. Because a lot of him. us don't know what he did with you. So could you back up and give us a little? Well, backstory? I just met him when he was young. He was a young comic. I wasn't book. I wasn't. I was past my producer days. I, but he, you know, he was at. Uh, he was at. Uh, Catch a rising star, I want, and uh, I used to see him over there in Harvard Square. Yeah, and he was great, you know. And he was just—you just knew he had this. I did, you know. I mean, I felt like, you know, I put him on the on the same list that you know I I had, you know, I'm a, probably seventy five percent of the time it was like. It was a good list to get on. If I saw you and thought you were going someplace, it's pretty good. You, pretty high percentage of doing well. And so, how did it happen that he called you and tell our audience what he wanted to do with you, and then what he did do with you, and how he flew in and flew out? We don't well, know. Well, well, the night that "Call Me Lucky" debuted at London Sundance, Louis and I are talking, and he said, "Hey, look, I want to do a special with you, but you got to go." And he tell, but he's very goal or you know it's very specific he's like he's like a businessman comic brain like he or you know sets uh you know at a, you know a goal and and eliminates everything between him and the, and then and then it's like exceeds the goal. he does it all the time so he said but i want you to go out and do a lot more because i haven't been performing i've been out making the movie i've been out promoting the movie i was just starting to promote the movie so he goes, so go out, and in about a year, we'll shoot a special. And so then I started booking, you know, more stuff. And then I then, uh, I ended up with Marcus Levy at APA. I don't know if you know him. He's great. And uh, uh, it just work, work, work. And then I shoot the spe- – and everything Louis said, I mean, he just said so- – because, like, a lot of people don't have the guts to say anything to me, but it's like I take notes, you know. I I will listen to – they the, the gruff, they buy the, the, the thorny exterior that's there probably because I was the little rape kid who just doesn't want, you know, like you let people close, they hurt you, you know. So I would – but once you get past that, it's like I'll give you, you know, anything. You're like, oh, okay. You know, you can have my car. I think it's the silver one. I'm not sure. You know, like people ask me what kind of car I have. I go, oh, it's red. Um, so anyway, Louis, you know, years later, I'm in L.A., and I see him directing 
and the median strip clearly like stealing like no permit or whatever you know i mean i get and i see him doing that he doesn't know this and and i don't see him for two more years and then i see some stuff he's done and 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 just anyway he started he's he he had you know his family just starting out and he's going between new york and and la and his first night he would he would bring his dog loop his dog was a sweetheart and uh he would bring him the dog he would drive the dog out west so he would take days to get out there because he's a sweetheart who cares about his dog um and and he would stop first stop was my house and then so i got to hear what his plans were and then like within two months all the time like everything he planned was happening so he is just a tactician brilliant comic and a but this tactician with this acuity and so you set up a date in lawrence kansas yeah, and yeah. he gets the production crew and everybody yeah, together yeah, does yeah. he direct it yes and so he flies in in one day yeah and he directs it yeah and then what happens with the special it's just about edited now he said he called me yesterday and said i want you to do me a favor i don't want you to uh, give us any notes on the editing <laughs> I went, you know, it's fine. Because I, I will, the, the footage will be mine anyway. So I can, you know, it's like, yeah, take a crack at it, Louie. I'm sure he'll do, I mean, and believe me, it'll be, it's best. It's like what like what I did with Call Me Lucky. I just don't, I try not to loom, you know. But uh, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. But I, I, I was very... The second show, I did two hours and ten minutes, including the encore. If you get an encore, that's not too long, you know. And uh, it, the room is great. The Lawrence Arts Center, the town is great. And he's got to edit it down to an hour. Yeah, I know. And there was about an. I mean, there was between the two shows. There's about three hours of material. Unless so. he sells it to a place like Netflix or one of those places, and they might do different times. All right, last name Bobcat Goldthwait. Uh, no, thank God I was nice to that kid. Um, no one works harder than him. He is always working. When Robin died, everybody, thank God, he, Bob was so close to it, he didn't have to see a lot of that crap. Everyone's theorizing and whatever. And, you know, then the when the report comes out from the coroner, it refutes a lot of what a lot of people presumed. You know, I mean, he he died from he he had a disease that hijacked his brain, and then they probably gave the wrong medication to him for that. And all these people, you know, it was a chance to be on. When they called me up to talk about it, I just said, "I have one thing to say, and it's off the record. No comment." And they're like, don't you want to be? It's like, no, Ronald Williams doesn't need me saying he was a cool guy at this moment. And it's not like, oh, thank God. Because this is the age we live in, you know, like, well, well, uh, David Bowie's family's got to be pretty bummed out. But now that Larry3838 with nine followers from Indianapolis has sent out his thoughts and prayers, that's probably going to turn it all around. Like, everybody's issuing statements these days. They're like, what? seriously like oh no my thoughts and prayers go out to the book no you, you no you, you your grandstand play is being seen by me 
and they are not poring over Twitter waiting for Larry 3838's remarks about. So, so anyway, Goldthwaite, but I knew that he had a lot of work to do on the movie, and I and I felt like that would really, uh, it's the one thing that really made me feel good was he will get back to this. And he got off that deck, you know, it was, it was three or four weeks, and he starts working on the movie again. And he gets it done in time to be at Sundance. I mean, we started in February. Robin dies in August. Now Sundance. So, and I mean, and we were, I mean, it's really sad, you know, sad for me. Robin was going to come around to the festival and stuff. And that was, I mean, you know, he was so much fun to hang around. So, uh, but Bob just poured himself into work and and uh, put that film together. And I mean, you know, false modesty aside, is anyway, it's it, it's a beautiful movie. He did an amazing, amazing job. And and uh, you know, like people give him a hard time. They say, they say. Uh, Why'd you make Barry go in the basement where I was raped as a kid? And it was the last thing. He's going like, I don't want you to go down. And I'm going like, I'm not going to let that place have that kind of power. I'm going in there, you know. And I want to take the onus off the place for any kid who might wander in there, you know. So, so uh, and Gold, it's, and you know, and so we're at uh, the Brooklyn Academy of Music and someone really kind of grills him. Why did you make Barry go into the basement? And Bob goes, no, I didn't, I wouldn't. I don't like those docs where they recreate things. So that's one thing I didn't want to do with this film. I didn't want to recreate anything. And I said, you didn't want to recreate anything. And Golte literally fell over like, you know, in a, in a roast, you know, like just we're sitting on the stage, just sitting directly on the stage. And then he just dropped. It was great. But we are such uh, old and dear friends. And... Uh, you know, it turns out may, we may not even be done uh, collaborating on a couple of things, but that's, and that's an exclusive to you. That vague statement is as far as I'm willing to go. Awesome. Your proudest moment in show business. Uh, I'm uh, on stage in San Diego, and uh, uh, someone literally yells, a line from my act because I mean because it, it was literally the same thing someone else said before but I swear this person had been some grief otherwise so it wasn't like they just did it naturally it wasn't it wasn't any way someone trying to say, but this guy has I me mean, if you love this country honey get out of it and I say because I don't want to be victimized by its foreign policy and the audience just you know it's just a big room a U.S. Grant auditorium and and uh, just the laughter rolls back and then forward again and then back and then about halfway back down, everyone starts clapping. Then they stop clapping and they're laughing again. I mean, and it's just like, it's embarrassing, you know, how, I mean, I, so I kind of, I, honest to God, out of not false humility, just like, this is weird. And I look, and so I just kind of, and I, I turn from the audience and I look over and in the wings, Jackson Brown, Bonnie Wright, Chris Christopherson, 
David Crosby, Graham Nash, Danny O'Keefe, and probably three other, you know, rock and roll Hall of Famers I'm not mentioning, thinking, are just like, because they've dealt with this love it or leave it shit their whole lives too. So they then they see someone just respond to it, and then they see what the and when, and I get off the stage, and I mean by the time I'm walking over, they're all like. It's it's like a mural. It's like Mount Rushmore music is hanging out there, and and as I'm walking over, I consciously made myself remember it. You know, like remember this. <laughs> you know, because like a lot, I, you can miss a lot of stuff, but this, I I got this, and I've always remembered it. Seeing those people, particularly Christopherson beaming, because he's got he's such a presence and such a wonderful person, and that's like. You know, I mean that, and Jackson getting to be proud of me. Hey, here's the guy I found. You know, and they're all going like, "Whoa!" You know, so it was cool. And and musicians have just done so much for me. Start first, first one I worked with a lot was Horns Yvonne, and from that on, it's just been it's been pretty cool. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel your career <laughs> well, to the next level. Well, oh man, my biggest disappointment. Uh, well, I gotta tell you, probably my biggest biggest disappointment was we started something that was pretty hip and and kind of underground. We were like the original comedy clubs were alternative, you know. Mm-hmm. And then when they kind of boiled it down to something that could be this corporate thing, you could sell shares, and it was just I just never dug the uh, the way they do comedy. They take it, often the least talented certainly the least experienced person and that's who sets the tone for the show and then somebody else and then maybe something you know and i did these shows where like like clearly this idiot on before me is trying to make it hard for me to follow them and it's like it's not hard to do yeah you can do that you know it's funny uh you know uh, charlie parker can't follow metallica you know, it doesn't mean Charlie Parker can't play the horn. It means, you know, it's tough to fall, to play a horn when everybody's deaf. So uh, that would be my biggest disappointment that that comedy clubs weren't a little hipper. But I got, I got it. I got. I have a plan. I'm gonna make. I'm gonna go. I'm one last production thing before I'm done. Next, I've got a couple of things I got to do. But the next, like new open-ended idea I have has to do with how comedy is presented and how everybody's involved in it. And I don't mean to knock the hosts of show or whatever, but I mean, they often just ratchet that common denominator to the pit. And then, you know, now we'd like to bring up a political satirist. They can't even say satirist, you know, he's a satirist. I'm gonna come out and do a little satire for you. <clears throat> last question so what advice do you have for the young artist who's coming up and who might be from a small town in upstate uh, right, new york right. or somewhere who's been through some horrible tragedies in their life and how can they fuel their selves and their career to the next level based on what you always looked for and talent and what you saw in all these great people what is it about those people that you think is the best words of wisdom to help you be that kind of person like you or like Stephen or like Paula right. or like Bob or like all these great, great people. Or like Barry. 
Um, like Barry Crimmins. Cats. All right. Barry Cats. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not a great artist. Uh, but you facilitate them. And that's a great art. Um, uh, well, if we just want to talk comedy, I would say learn your craft. Uh, comedy, learn your craft. The first thing you need to learn how to do is take the stage. I can't believe I see these guys do national TV shots and they come and go, how you doing? Like, that's a rhetorical question to the nation. You know, you're not focusing them in. On it. Like, you just got introduced as a funny guy. Walk out and be funny. Bang! Take the stage. That's platinum that time when they first walk out there. If you're fun, I've always tried to have something very concise and funny and often as, as much to do with any, you know, like, oh, he can tell he's on the same, it's hot here too. You know, like, you know, something that relates to them and you just bang and you get them that way. And that's walking in and that's some kind of sales technique, I guess. And I want to interject here, but I won't let you lose your point of thought. I think what Barry's alluding to, instead of how you doing, if you got to say something to make yourself feel comfortable, make a statement. Great being here. I was over yeah. at this place the other day. Right. Let them know you're happy to be there or let them know if you have to feel comfortable that way, but never ask a question to right, start off. Right, okay, right. keep going with yeah, your thought. Right. Exactly. But exactly. And it's like, how you doing? Hey, or just even hello, Philadelphia. Well, they know they're in Philadelphia. You know, I mean, if you're a huge act, yeah say hello philadelphia but otherwise you're some guy they never heard of but they said you're really funny go out and be really funny that's all do your job you know take the stage but that's platinum and you get so much credit for that up front you you feel it accruing with an audience you know like okay that's why i i i've always been able to you know kind of like now i'm giving a speech and you people are putting up with it you know because i was funny for a long time uh, so that's that. As far as, you know, they they try to tell you you can do anything you want to do. What they don't want you to know is that's the truth. You know. The people that are doing the most amazing things I know didn't take no for an answer. If you can be talked out of it, then you shouldn't do it. But if you can't, you know, stay on it and whatever, you know. Look at you. Played against Sam's, to you know, come on, man, you're the, the best. I mean, you're the best example of that. You just had an idea and you put it together, you realized the deal. Come on, let's get the logo up again. <laughs> <laughs> you realized the deal and you made it happen. That's, uh, you know, that's inspirational. And, and, and from a kid, you know, and again, I, you know, all power to your mother for sticking up for you, man good for her you know uh there's so many people there's people i deal with whose parents dropped the ball and i actually talk to the parents and they feel bad about but they missed things you um she she created a situation where you could tell her anything and you did and that's why it's so that's so much more stable than the implied contract that a lot of kids get so that's you know you're not it was a terrible thing that happened to you, but it was, it was processed correctly, you know? So, uh, and then to think, you know, you and I are just like the two berries. <laughs> <laughs> just like, you know, like, yeah, like the Patty Duke show. You can't, you know, 
just has to mean an awful lot to you. But uh, really understand, you know, on a certain conscious level, you're not that interesting, but what you've got to offer is interesting. What you really have is interesting. But it's not like... We sort of live in an era where people can broadcast the fact that they're putting their shoes on, you know, and it's sort of like, okay, wow, you put shoes on and you're putting on your feet. That's amazing, you know. But if you really got something to say, the interesting thing is everybody thinks that what you have to say is planned in advance. The trick is, is getting yourself to the point where, you know, you're just using the audience or whatever it is, is you know, like, I don't have to have a therapist. I get to do this here. But you don't know what you're going to say or what you're going to do, really, if you're really an artist, until it's like you're on the spot and you got to come up with it, you know? So I would say put yourself on the spot. And and if you quit, that's your choice. And I understand because it's a really stupid, you know, I mean, you you know how what the percentages of people who filter through. Like, you know, I'm like a relative pauper, but I've got to, people go, oh, you're so successful lately. And they go, I've been doing what I want every day since I was 18 years old. Like, you kidding me? I, I thought that was successful. I didn't have to answer to some shithead and sit in a cubicle and, and get some middle manager bully pushing me around that I would see him pushing somebody else around and I end up getting arrested for choking him or something. So I'm very lucky, you know, uh, but you can do anything you want. You can if you got the guts to do it. And the, and and then the follow through to continue to do it. And that's what you've done. You know, you're so like you're one of my you're on that list of people like there's friends or people I know from a long time ago that's just like, you know, he's so successful. If I track him down, I'll think I'm looking for something. <laughs> and I know wasn't I always wanted to go tremendous you did that like and again and again your name would turn up like holy crap and then people are going like hey uh then people try when people try to get to you through me i would go no i never talked to me but and but i would be thinking i wish i was talking to but you know and i probably could get a hold of them for this clown but i'm not going to (laughs) because you know i but that's how i i find part of how I realized the magnitude to which you had uh, uh, elevated yourself and it's because you did so much to help other I mean like you've been a major contributor to the American comedy scene and I thank you and I don't know why sometimes you're left out of some of the Boston stories because I'll tell you what I say you should talk to the cats you know because that's a whole other angle. I didn't know what the deal was. I like to go over and play your club sometimes. You know, i always happy to. Um, I made the mistake of not doing when stand-up stood out. I just felt like I didn't have what to offer to them. And that I was a big mistake because I, I love you, that. Yeah, I wish you did. If you're getting to the next level, if you're getting to the alleged next level, you're sort of not noticing it. And because the next level is higher and busier and so you're just busy doing dealing with all this stuff. Like I'm, I'm as man. I've never been so busy. So I must be doing okay. But uh, I I wish I were this busy 20 years ago. And I wish I. Would, but it is what it is. You got to show up when they ask you. 
And so they're asking, and they uh, call me lucky. That's all. It's a little plug, a little product placement. There, there you go. Very. Thank you very much for having me on your, your podcast. Uh, it's terrific to see you. Now we're in touch again. Now I can call you up and you'll know I'm not going to be like, you know, asking you to co-sign a loan. You can always call me. I just want to share this with you. And I never think of myself as successful. I never think of myself as doing well every day. I think to myself, it's the last day. And I think you're successful. I think to myself, my God, the guy's been doing this for 30 some odd years He's going to Lawrence, Kansas to a performance center and selling it out and getting standing ovations and encores and doing two and a half hours. And meanwhile, I'm sitting in a Hyatt hotel room on a worn out blue chair oh. <laughs> doing interviews that I'm hoping will help people. So believe me, you're incredibly successful. I'm so grateful yeah. you came here and shared your story. Oh. And I'm grateful you allowed me to share mine. Thank you. And thank you so much. And we will be in touch. Love you, brother. Thanks for having me. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. All right, landing on Gregory Selke from Sterling Heights, Michigan. Congratulations, you are a winner. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on specific nickname October 7th 2013 heading reads fascinating five stars and it reads I can't put my finger on it but it's completely fascinating I will never get in the business but still scratches that itch love more stories Bill Burr Monday Morning Podcast Burtcast Harmontown Nerdist Indoor Kids well, thank you so much, Specific Nickname. You are a winner. All right. This has been another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain.
It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.